Amen. You may be seated. We are going to continue in our worship through the preaching of God's word. And so I want to read our passage for us this morning, which is found in John chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John four. It'll also be on the screens. John chapter four, starting in verse seven says this. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, that in it are the words of life itself. Lord, in it, you show us our brokenness and our need for you. And Lord, in it, you show us that through faith in Jesus, we find salvation. And so, Lord, we pray for Pastor Kevin as he proclaims your word with clarity, Lord, that you would clear his mind. Lord, we pray for ourselves that as we hear from your word, that our, we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are willing to be shaped and molded and conformed into the image of Jesus. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you for being here uh, and being in, in worship uh, with us today. It's very exciting to start off this uh, church year with baptisms like we've had this morning. We have more in the second service and we have more coming next week. And so thank you for being here and worshiping with us and being a part of that. Years ago, when I was serving as a student pastor in a church in North Georgia, I had a mom that came to me one Sunday morning at church, and she said, I've got to tell you a story 
about two of the kids in your youth group. Now, one of those was her son, an eighth grade boy who I guess was about 14 years old at the time. To protect his identity and for the sake of this story, we'll just call him son. He is now around 40 years old, has kids of his own, and so we'll simply refer to him as son. The story involved son and son's friend, who was also in the youth group, another eighth grade boy who was around 14 years old. They were at son's house watching the 1998 Winter Olympics. Son and son's friend were on the floor with a pillow behind their head, looking up at the television. Also in the room were mom and mom's daughter, who was a fourth grade girl around 10 years old. And in this story, we'll just call her little sister. So son, son's friend, mom, and little sister are all watching the 1998 Winter Olympics. And the particular event that was featured was the men's ski jump. If you're familiar with that event, you know that the skier will go to a ramp, go down a steep 70-meter ramp that turns upward at the end, fly through the air trying to get as much distance as possible and then land and whoever goes the farthest I think gets the gold medal. They were watching this event several skiers went and then one particular skier came to the top of the ramp and the mom said I have no idea what this skier's name is, I cannot tell you which country he is from. All I know is this skier came to the top of the ramp and before he went down the steep decline, he made the sign of the cross over himself. Very common Roman Catholic practice that's sort of an outward symbol of an inner prayer for protection. I don't know about you, but if I was going down a 70-meter ramp on a pair of skis, even though I'm not Catholic, I might very well make the sign of the cross. Son, son's friend are on the floor. They're watching this. The skier makes the sign of the cross, and son's friend blurts out with extreme derision in his voice, Oh, Methodist. Mom begins to laugh, son begins to laugh, turns his head to his friend and says, you big dummy, it's not Methodist, it's Presbyterian. <laughs> Little sister's on the couch, she laughs so hard she nearly falls off the couch and says, I'm just a 10-year-old kid, and even I know it's Roman Catholic. You're both big dummies. <laughs> I don't know what your particular denominational background is. However, I think there is a lot of confusion when it comes to the topic of worship. And so we are starting today a series called Worship Matters. And over the next four weeks, I hope that you'll be a part of this series as we talk about what it truly means to worship the God who created us. Um, you can see the title on the, the screen behind me, Worship Matters. I lifted 
This particular title from an individual named Bob Coughlin, who is a worship pastor and actually has a book by this title. Uh, There is a sort of double meaning in the title. Uh, One is in this series, we will talk about matters related to worship. What is individual worship? What is corporate worship? Why is corporate worship so important? What are the elements of worship? Why is it important to worship in spirit and in truth? And so we will talk about a lot of matters related to worship. But there is a second meaning in this title as well. Worship really matters in our lives. There is something about worship when you and I connect with the God who created us that does something in our hearts and in our souls. It fills us with an inexpressible joy that cannot be attained through any other avenue of life. There is a reason that throughout the Bible, especially when you read through the Psalms, there is command after command after command to worship the Lord. Not just because God is deserving of our worship, but because through that worship, God does something in us. And so I am really excited that you are here today and hope that you will make these worship services over the next several weeks a priority as we dive into this topic. So this morning, what I'd like to do is to begin with a definition of worship. You can see this on your message map if you have that with you. It is the very first sentence there, and you can write this in. Worship is the outward expression of an inner delight. And I have no idea if that is original with me. I did not copy it from anyone, but I'm sure someone else has come up with a very similar definition before. Worship is an outward expression of an inner delight. There are a couple of things you need to know about this definition. One is we are all worshipers. Every person on the planet is a worshiper. Even if this is your first time setting foot in a church, you are a worshiper. Even if you do not believe in the God of the Bible or any God for that matter, you are by your very nature a worshiper. We all worship something. The second thing about this definition is that this outward expression can take any number of forms. It can be with your words. That's how you worship. If you really love something, if you worship something or someone you will talk all the time about that thing or that person. Have you ever been around a guy who is in love with a girl? Talks about her all the time. Sometimes ad nauseum. You know, that's enough. Why? Because he is in love and worships this girl. And so he, with his words, talks about her a lot. Sometimes that outward expression... Uh, of an inner delight can be around a sport. Anytime someone begins to talk about a particular sport, you jump in the conversation and you talk about it too because this is something that you worship. Worship can be through our actions. It can, it can be what we do. If a guy delights in a girl, maybe he brings her flowers or he takes her on a date or he takes his money and he spends it on her uh, to buy her gifts. Um, Sometimes this outward expression is our time. 
And so if a guy is in love with a girl, he's going to spend a lot of time with her. Someone loves a sport, they will spend a lot of time watching or playing this particular sport. Whether it's through our words or our actions or our time, all of those outward expressions are worship. They are outward expressions of an inner desire for someone or something. However, obviously, we are in a Christian church worship service this morning, and we are talking specifically about Christian worship. So getting a little bit more specific about this topic, and you can see this is your second point on your message map. Christian worship, therefore, is the outward expression of an inner delight in the Lord. And so Christian worship specifically is this outward expression of an inner delight in the Lord. It is valuing and delighting in God and the outward expression of that, the outward expression of one who treasures God through our words, through our actions, through the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, for the follower of Christ... Christian worship is this proclamation, this expression of an inner devotion to God. So how is this done? Over the last 2,000 years, Christians have worshipped in a multitude of ways. From the very formal to the very informal, from highly structured worship to very unstructured worship, I have been a part of worship services where hands were raised all throughout the congregation. And I have been in worship services where I thought if I raise my hands, an usher is going to come and quickly escort me out. I mean, Christians have worshiped in a lot of different ways, hundreds and hundreds of different ways. And none of them are necessarily better or worse than others. As much as Christians have fought over worship elements like contemporary versus traditional, there really isn't a whole lot in the Bible that definitively speaks to these various elements. However, there are two principles given that guide true Christian worship. These two principles come from the lips of Jesus and were found in the passage that Ryan read earlier. A passage that is likely very familiar to you if you grew up in church or you have spent much time in church. This week we will look at the first principle and the next week we will cover the second principle that Jesus gives us. To set this principle up, let's go back to the story. Very early in this story of Jesus and the woman at the well in Samaria... John, the writer of the Gospel of John, tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, in one sense, that wasn't the case at all. Jesus technically did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, commonly, Jews never went through Samaria. Uh, in that day, Samaria was a region that essentially cut Israel in half. Jerusalem, Judea uh, were to the south of Samaria. Uh, the Sea of Galilee was to the north of Samaria. 
The Jordan River was on the right side of Samaria, the Mediterranean Sea on the left side of Samaria. And so the average Jewish person, if they were traveling from Jerusalem in the south to Galilee in the north, they would go right, they would go on the other side of the Jordan River, they would travel on the eastern side of the Jordan River up to Galilee, going way out of their way, just so they did not have to go through Samaria. And so in one sense, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. And yet, in another sense, he very much had to go through Samaria. Early in his gospel, John wanted to make it crystal clear why Jesus came. That Jesus did not come as a savior for the Jews only, but for the entire world. And so John wanted to highlight early in his gospel story, this very unique truth about why Jesus came. And I call it unique because Christianity is unlike any other world religion. When you look around, Christians come from hundreds of different cultures and countries all around the world. Christians speak a multitude of different languages. Christians worship this morning in hundreds of different languages all around the world. No other world religion has ever, ever crossed so many borders and gone into so many different cultures and taken root in so many different people groups like the Christian gospel has done on every single continent and in hundreds of different nations, there are those who worship Jesus, which is the next point on your message map. If you have that, you can fill this in. Christian worshipers are all over the world. We see Christians worshiping all over our planet. I have worshiped with other believers in Italy, in Russia, in Mexico, in Haiti, uh, most recently in Guatemala. One of the most memorable worship experiences I have ever had was in Haiti. Uh, A worship pastor who served here years ago named Jared Fincher uh, and I traveled to Haiti about a decade ago to meet with a guy who was serving as our missionary there at the time, a guy named Stephen Bixby. Uh, We arrived in Haiti. We met with Stephen. We met with several leaders uh, who were there. and, And at some point, we went up into this village in the mountainside and met with several pastors who uh, had come from villages all around and the pastor who was at the church in this particular village. The church met outdoors, and so we sat on these benches in this outdoor sort of courtyard where this church would meet, and we met with these pastors, and we talked about the various needs of, of the Haitians and the various needs of this church. We spent 30 minutes or an hour talking, and before we broke up, these Haitian pastors suggested that we worship together, that we sing a hymn together. And so we stood and we locked arms and we sang the old hymn, How Great Thou Art. Stephen, Jared, and I sang it in English. The Haitian pastors sang in Haitian, and it was incredible. It was this beautiful picture of how the gospel has spread all around the world to all these different people groups. 
as we sang and worshiped in our respective languages, John very much wanted his readers to understand that Jesus did not come as a savior for the Jews only, but for the entire world. John also highlighted this particular story, I am convinced, because of the background of this woman. The text told us that Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Uh, the Jews sort of looked down their religious noses at the Samaritans. They very much considered the Samaritans to be unrighteous. Uh, when you and I hear the phrase, good Samaritan, those two words sort of roll off our tongues very naturally. But when Jesus told that story, there was a shock factor. The Jews did not consider Samaritans to be good at all. And so the hero of the story was a huge surprise to everyone who listened. So if Samaritans in general were considered to be unrighteous, this woman in particular would have been thought of as extremely unrighteous. And we could say with, with good reason. She had been divorced five times and, and in the story she's shacking up with a guy who was not her husband. I mean, this was a woman who was considered by the Samaritans to be the town floozy. And the reason we know that in the story is because she comes in the middle of the day to draw water from the well. That was not common. Women came in the morning when it was cool and at the start of the day so they could have water for their day, for the needs of the day. And yet this woman comes not in the morning when the other women came. She came in the middle of the day by herself. Why? Because she was rejected by the others in her town. She wasn't welcomed by those other women who gathered. She was shunned because of her reputation. And so if she had a reputation among the Samaritans, just imagine what her reputation would have been like among the Jews. Her moral choices meant in their minds that she was disqualified from God's love and acceptance. They would have said she was outside of the tent of God's love, unwelcomed by others who worshiped God. Except you notice in the story, Jesus did not treat her that way at all. Now, he did not excuse her sin but he made it crystal clear that her sin had not disqualified her from God's love. He made it very clear that she could be forgiven and that she was very much welcome inside the tent called the family of God. To this incredibly sinful woman, Jesus offers living water, a metaphor for salvation. Which leads us to the next truth on your message map. You can take this and write this in. Christian worshipers are forgiven, not perfect. And again, this is a unique teaching. It was then and it is now a unique teaching to the gospel. Every other world religion says, if you are good enough, if you will just do enough, if you will measure up, if you will follow the laws enough, you can reach God. 
Only Christianity says God has been good enough on your behalf. Jesus was perfect for you. Through his grace and through his mercy, you are forgiven. So Christian worshipers come not claiming to be perfect, but claiming to have this forgiveness that has come through Jesus Christ. And understand this, if you are right now outside of the tent because you are outside of Jesus, here's what you need to understand. No one has ever been able to out the cross. You can tweet that, you can whatever the new thing, it's not tweet anymore, right? You can X that, that doesn't sound right. You can write that down, you can post that. No one has ever been able to out the cross. No one is beyond God's grace. And John makes that crystal clear in his account of Jesus and this woman. So in the passage that Ryan read earlier, G- Jesus asked the Samaritan woman to go and get her husband. And she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right, you're right. You have no husband. In fact, you've been married five times. And this guy that you're with now, you're just living together. You guys aren't married. I mean, Jesus knew that this woman had to deal with her sin first if she was going to accept the living water that Jesus was offering to her. So she says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right. At five, you're living with a guy. You can imagine the blood draining from her face with this response of Jesus. Uh Uh-oh, this guy knows stuff. He knows stuff about me. He knows bad stuff about me. So the woman does what most of us do when we get called out about our sin, when someone confronts us about our, our junk. She changes the topic, right? Very common thing to do. Look back at verse 19. You can see this on the screen. Jesus, uh, uh, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says, you've had five husbands. You're living with a guy now who's not your husband. She says, oh, wait a second. Let's have a theological conversation about worship rather than talking about my sin. And she references here this major debate that took place between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews claimed that all real worship took place in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple, there on the Temple Mount. The Samaritans said, no, 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 that's not the place where you were supposed to worship. You're supposed to worship on this mountain called Gerizim, which was located right next door to where Jesus and this woman were having this conversation. I mean, this wasn't the only reason Samaritans and Jews did not get along, but it was a major reason. You have these two groups of people who both traced their roots back to Abraham, but there was a division along the way. And at this point, you had one group pointing their finger at the other group saying, you guys are heretics. And this group pointing their finger at this group going, no, you guys are the heretics. And this woman has Jesus standing in front of her and she knows that Jesus knows a lot of stuff. And so she says, you can settle this debate. Who is right? You guys, the Jews, is it Jerusalem? 
Is it the temple? Is that where we're supposed to worship God? Or is it Gerizim where we say that you're supposed to worship God? And as happens so often in the Gospels, the response of Jesus wasn't at all what she expected. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. Notice that Jesus says to this woman, Look, this whole debate between Jews and Samaritans about where is the proper place to worship, this whole debate will end very soon. Just 30-something years after Jesus spoke these words, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And for 2,000 years, that temple has remained destroyed, never to be rebuilt. Now, Israel was destroyed and only reestablished in 1948. What Jesus spoke here was absolutely true. Samaria was destroyed. No one worships anymore on Gerizim. Jesus here says, look, this debate about the proper place to worship really isn't the proper question. This is not the right debate. So he answers her initial question, but then he continues his discussion about worship and gives even more clarity. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So here Jesus defends the traditions of the Jews and points out that salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is through the line of the Messiah of Jesus who is standing right there in front of her. And so he says, look, the theological truths, the Samaritans did not believe in what you and I would call the Old Testament or all of the Old Testament. The theological truths of the Old Testament are right and salvation is ultimately from the Jews. And then verse 23, and this is where we get our two principles about worship. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus gives these two principles about worship, and you notice that they had nothing to do with form. Although this is where Christians disagree, this is where they fight. This is how denominations are formed. This is how churches split over fights about worship and the form of worship. Yet Jesus does not address that here. He, he doesn't talk about whether you should sing old hymns or modern worship songs. Whether it's right to have drums in worship or not have drums in worship. Whether you should take Holy Communion every Sunday or not. Uh, whether or not you should have responsive readings in worship or not, how long the sermon should be. I mean, Jesus doesn't address any of that. And yet he gives us these two key principles on how we should worship. We'll look at the first principle today just briefly and the second principle next week. So you can fill this in. This is on your message map. Genuine Christian worship is guided by the Spirit. Jesus made that crystal clear. Look at what he said in verse 24. God is Spirit, 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, at times, this verse has been misinterpreted to mean that when we worship, we should worship in truth and we should worship with our spirits, Um, that we should be emotionally engaged in worship, that our hearts should be in worship, that it's not just with our minds, but there should be feelings in worship. And certainly, you can argue that. I mean, our emotions do need to be engaged. You and I should feel something when we come to worship. Feelings aren't everything, but they are something. And worship that is filled with a lot of truth but no emotion isn't true worship. You could call it cold, dead orthodoxy, but if the heart is not engaged, I'm not even sure if it's orthodox. Emotions absolutely should be engaged in worship, but that is not what Jesus is talking about here. His reference to the Spirit is a reference to the Holy Spirit. In other words, true worship is guided by the Holy Spirit. Here's why this is so important. Here's what you need to understand. When you become a follower of Christ, you receive into your life the gift of the Holy Spirit. I will not go into a lot of detail this morning about the whole nature of the Trinity. That is a long sermon. That is a long series. There have been volumes written about the Trinity. But just understand this. When you become a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and the Holy Spirit is God. Therefore, you get the presence of God in your life to guide you, to convict you over sin, to cheer you on when you're doing right, to help you make decisions, you get this amazing, incredible gift of the Spirit of God living inside of you. And yet, for all of us who follow Christ, we understand that even though the Spirit of God is inside us, there is a constant struggle and battle between following the Spirit and following the flesh. Throughout the New Testament, we read these encouragements to walk in the Spirit, do not walk in the flesh. Follow the Holy Spirit, do not follow your own flesh. And it is a daily, hourly, sometimes minute by minute choice to either walk in the Spirit or walk in the flesh. And it affects every area of our lives, every slice of our lives, including, and this is key for today, including our worship. Meaning you and I can come into these corporate worship gatherings and we can completely worship in our flesh, not in the spirit. We can be guided by our flesh, not guided by the spirit of God. And in In fact, we see this specifically stated in Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Philippians 3, this is what Paul wrote as an encouragement to the Philippians. Worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And what? Put no confidence in the flesh. Paul was contrasting the way that we worship. You can worship in the Spirit and you can bring glory to Christ or... You can put your confidence in the flesh and you can worship that way. Years ago when 
we here were looking for a new worship pastor. We interviewed a number of candidates and we had one candidate um, in particular that was serving at the time in Atlanta, not as a worship pastor, but as a musician who would play at a number of different church venues. Um, He was an incredibly talented musician and he said uh, that he was able to make a very good living just doing contract work just on Sundays. He would play at a church early in the morning, you know, an eight o'clock worship service. Maybe would, they would have a nine o'clock worship service and a 1030 and maybe even a 12. And then he would drive to another church and they would have a four o'clock worship service or a five o'clock worship service. And he would just play all day long on Sunday. Rest of the week, he'd just kick back, relax and play, do whatever he wanted to do because he was paid so much to play in these churches that he could make a living. So we asked... Why are you looking at this job? You got to work. You got to work more than just one day a week. You know, you're, you're, you've named a salary that's about what we would pay you. Why are you looking at this job? And he said, you know, I'm just tired of it. I said, what do you mean? He said, I go to these churches and there are thousands of people that are worshiping in these churches. They are large venues. Thousands of people worshiping. I'm on stage with these guys. And he said, they are all incredibly talented. He said, the drummer, guitarist, bass guitarist, keyboard, incredibly talented. And we lead these worship services and then we go backstage. And he says, and I get backstage and I listen to the conversations. There's cussing going on, inappropriate jokes that are being told. Guys are talking about how, can't believe how hungover I am after what I did last night. Can't believe I was able to play as hungover as I am today. And he said, what he saw were guys who were able to play instruments very well, but they were not worshiping in the spirit. No matter how much they were proclaiming words that were true through their instruments or through vocals, no matter how much truth was there, they were not worshiping through the Holy Spirit. So practically speaking, this is what it means for you and I. You and I can come in this room to gather with our family of faith and we can see it as just checking a box. We're going to go through the motions. God, surely you're happy with me. Check. I showed up to church today. Pour out your blessings, God. Make my week good because I came and I worshiped and we are not being guided by the spirit. We are 100% being guided by the flesh. Or maybe we come into worship and it's all about our preferences. I like song number one, but song number two and three, no, not so much. And don't get me started on that sermon. (laughs) You know, that was rough. And we become critiques, almost like we've gone to a movie. And we're talking about it from an audience perspective, not a participant. And so we're being guided by our flesh, not guided by the Spirit. Or maybe we come in and it's all about how others can look at us. And so we're very expressive. We're being guided by pride. You know, we want everyone to look at us. Or maybe we don't move at all. We don't want anyone to look at us. And it's not really about worshiping God. It's about making sure that we're either seen or not seen by others. 
We're being guided by the flesh, not by the spirit. Jesus here says, true worshipers will worship in spirit. They will worship in spirit. They will be guided by the Holy Spirit. Pray today that God would give us the wisdom to know how to do that.